All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Crypto 101 podcast. I'm your host, Bryce, uh, and I'm joined today by an awesome guest, uh, a co-founder in the space, uh, a serial co-founder, it sounds like, uh, of the UMA protocol, of across network, uh, or across protocol, as well as outcome finance. And so, Hart Lambert, uh, welcome to the podcast, and I uh, hope you're having a good day so far. How are Thanks, things Bryce. <laughs> things are going well, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it, things are... Probably crazy in your world. I know uh, you just launched a, a token on the Across Protocol uh, in the depths of a bear market. So that's a ballsy move. I, I haven't had many people on the podcast in the last, like, call it six months that have launched a token. So tell us about the thought process behind that. Yeah, we'll get. I guess we'll jump right into it. Just like, what jump does it in. mean? Yeah, what does it mean to launch a token <laughs> in the in the depth of a bear market? I mean, so we've done this now twice. Uh, the Uma token. We didn't launch in the depths of a bear exactly. We launched at the end of a bear. Um, this is in <laughs> April of 2020. Um, we were actually the UMA token, to go back for a second, was the first token that was ever listed solely and exclusively on a decentralized exchange. So, um, so we were the first token to ever list on Uniswap. And um, one of the experiences we had from that is it's really cool to be able to grow your network from the bottom. like actually have a community that's earning ownership in a network um, from the low prices, let's say, from from the start. And um, I actually think there are some serious advantages to launching a network. So across the token for the across bridge, and we'll go into what across is and how that all works. Launching that right at the depths of a bear market, it has a real advantage of like the people that are interested in it, the people that join our community, the Mm. people that earn that token they're here for the long run uh i think it builds like a long-term vibrant kind of diehard community and it gets rid of a lot of the grifters and the kind of like the fast money types that might just be interested in quick profits i think that's a really uh astute observation of like you know you're you're building on such fertile soil of these you know, basically volcanic ash. Like everybody who's here now has been blown up to pieces and is like here for the long term. And, uh, you know, that it's very fertile soil after such a big crash. And you're going to have the diehards. You're going to have uh, the people that are going to build strong foundations. So I think that's super clever um, on, on across protocol and UMA protocol, kind of taking the same, um, the same playbook, if you will, uh, and, and rolling it out. Because, you know, UMA has been wildly... Uh, wildly successful, um, you know, universal market access is what that stands for. Correct. That's right. Yep. How did you kind of, how did you kind of come up with that theory? What's going on at UMA uh, at universal market access? What's the driving philosophy? So, well, what is it? I think is a starting point. Um, We call it a a decentralized truth machine, um, which I think is a really fun and catchy title, but it's actually a legitimate reflection of what it is. So, What UMA tries to do is figure out a mechanism to get arbitrary truths onto a blockchain. And some people in the space call this the Oracle problem. How does a blockchain Mm -hmm. know what's happening outside of the blockchain? How does it get data outside of the blockchain? And blockchain can't know what the weather is, right? Like it just blockchain can't know what the weather is. Yeah. Blockchain can't know. (laughs) Yeah. It can't know the price of crypto in us dollar terms, for example, because it doesn't know those are like off chain, um, uh, prices. Uh, it can't know 
what's actually happening on other blockchains? That's another kind of interesting question. And this is actually where a cross comes in, which we'll get to later on. So a blockchain only literally knows what's in its blockchain universe. That's it. Um, so you need another system to get data or information onto that blockchain. And this other system better be decentralized and trustless because otherwise, why are you using a blockchain in the first place? Like, it doesn't right. make sense. So this idea of how do we build a system that gets data and information onto a blockchain in a trustless and decentralized way is a very difficult problem. Um, and there are some approaches out there. A lot of people are familiar with an approach called Chainlink. That uh, mm -hmm. Chainlink works well for getting some price data onto a blockchain, getting the price of Ethereum or the price of Bitcoin. But what UMA does is it works very well for other types. Of, I'll call it long tail data. If I want to know uh, the weather, or if I want to in a particular area, if I want to know some isoteric price, if I want to do a complicated calculation, uh, if I want to know what's happening on the blockchain, kind of any other form of truth, we need a different mechanism to get that information onto a blockchain. And that's that's what we do. Fascinating. And so so you, you've built, you know, kind of, the Oracle, right, with UMA, with uh, universal market access, and then now you're focusing as well on another problem, which is the bridge problem. So you got two problems, you're tackling them both of them, uh, but also, you know, bridges seem to be the biggest problem in the industry right now from a security standpoint, right? Like the Ronin bridge, and uh, you know, wormholes getting hacked, and uh, Nomad, you know, got hacked a few months ago. And so it just seems like they're a honeypot. And so how does a cross protocol think about being a bridge in the space? Um, I think I also saw one of the catch lines, uh, or the catch phrases was like the protocol or the bridge that Ethereum deserves. So how are you guys different and, and what's going on over at Across? Do you like that? Do you like the bridge that Ethereum I love deserves? It. I love it. It's it made new. me feel, yeah, it made me feel like, yeah, hell yeah. I'm empowered. Good. Good, good. We want to be the most loved bridge in the space, so that's what we're that's what we're going for. Um, Love it. Uh, yeah, Bryce. So, so the, why did we build a cross in the first place? So, bridging is, in my opinion, can be thought of as an oracle problem. Um, in order to bridge assets between chains, I need to know what happened on another chain. So, there's like one blockchain needs to know something that happened outside of that blockchain. In this case, that something is what happened on another blockchain, but we still need a way for them to communicate. And uh, across is like what I'll kind of call like a next generation bridge, where we have a lot of really sophisticated, it's pretty simple in concept, but, it, but like very simple concepts that allow us to keep security, to maximize security in a way that I think is pretty unique to our design. And I, I won't, don't want to get like too technical on our podcast, but the, the basic gist of it is that we have a mechanism where all we require is a single person to say something's not right. This is, uh, this is our Oracle um, design. It's called an optimistic Oracle. So optimistically, we'll assume, assume things are true. And the only security requirement we have is that there's a single actor out there that will say, hey, this isn't right. And as long as one actor out there can say it isn't right, then um, our, our system is secure and protected. Um, and so that's kind of this interesting concept of how we've used UMA to build, use the optimistic Oracle that UMA's built as the security model uh, in this cross-chain protocol called the Cross. 
Very nice. And, and would you say that it, you know, from an architecture standpoint could fall prey to some of the similar attacks that happened on, on wormhole, for instance, um, where what? kind of all these different assets got, got completely drained from a centralized pot. Let's go deeper on that because I think it'd be beneficial for your users to kind of understand some of these architectural differences between bridges um, because there are real security risks here that I want uh, want people to better understand. So our first distinction here, I think there are two classes of bridges out there. Uh, One class is what I'll call a wrapped asset bridge and the other class I'll call a liquidity network. Um, And so what's the difference between the two? In a wrapped asset bridge, what the bridge does is someone like, we'll say Bryce, you deposit assets on the uh, the source chain. So I might deposit Ethereum into a contract on the Ethereum chain. And then the bridge, let's say you're trying to move that asset to Solana. The bridge will go and mint a representation of that asset on Solana. And so it'll have the wrapped ETH on Solana. And this wrapped ETH on Solana, this, this, this Solana token, is a ticket, it's a receipt that says, hey, this represents some Ethereum on the Ethereum blockchain. Mm-hmm. So okay. in concept, that's all well and good, but there's an issue here that if the bridge ever gets, uh, gets compromised, you might lose all your money. So if I'm owning this wrapped Ethereum on Solana and the bridge gets compromised, it, that my wrapped Ethereum on Solana might become unbacked and become worthless. And this is what happened in the wormhole hack and what happened in the nomad hack. Um, and so I personally don't, do not like this design because if I use this wrapped asset bridge, I forever have risk to the security of that bridge. If anything ever goes wrong, uh, I might lose my money. Mm-hmm. The other class of bridge is what I'll call a liquidity network. And this class of bridge, what you're actually doing is you're going to get a native asset on the other side. You're not going to get a wrapped asset. You're going to get a real asset on the destination side. So in this case, say I wanted to move from uh, Ethereum to Arbitrum. Uh, I'm going to deposit Ethereum on the Ethereum side, and I'm going to get Ethereum on the Arbitrum side, and there's no wrapping in between. And what the bridge is really doing is making it fast, cheap, and easy for me to move between Ethereum on Ethereum and Ethereum on Arbitrum. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Does that make sense as a difference? It, it do, yeah, it, do, it, it definitely does. And when I think about it, I think like, you know, Bitcoin, for instance, is, is pretty much siloed on Bitcoin. Um, and then you have wrapped Bitcoin, um, you, know, ra- you know, I think it's custodied by block uh, by BitGo or BitGo. something. Yep. Yeah. And we had Mike Belshi, who was on the show literally just like last week, and he was talking about wrapped Bitcoin when the whole and wrapped Ethereum when the peg was lost and how it got restored and all that stuff. But um, for a system like a cross, you know, doesn't there need to be a massive amounts of liquidity in these pools for like for Bitcoin to, you know, if I wanted to send Bitcoin from Bitcoin to like native Ethereum, like how does that really work if there's not much liquidity? Well, that's our whole edge here. So a cross is okay. basically designed uh, to be maximally capital efficient. So what I mean by that is the across protocol wants to use as little capital as possible to do as much bridging as possible. And our thesis here is kind of twofold, is that if across, if we can design a system that requires relatively little capital to do a lot of volume, it'll be cheaper because capital has a cost. Like if I need money to be able to provide the service, I've got to like leverage. Yeah, 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 it does. It's not exactly this. It's basically like, if I needed, say I needed a billion dollars in order to do a billion dollars of volume on my bridge, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to have to kind of rent or borrow that billion dollars from people nice. that are going to lend it to me. And that's going to cost a lot, right? But if I could do a billion dollars of volume with $10 million of capital, for example, well, I could rent or borrow that $10 million for a hell of a lot less than the billion dollars that I have to rent or borrow, right? Um and so that's our idea behind capital efficiency of how we can keep costs really low. The other advantage of being super capital efficient is we just have less security risks. So like I said, a cross is, is not a wrapped asset bridge. Uh, we are like a liquidity network. And so users, bridge users that use the bridge, they don't really have much security risk. As soon as they get their assets on the other side, they're done and they can move on. But liquidity providers to the bridge, people that are choosing to provide liquidity and are earning some fees or services for doing so, they do have security risks here where there is some possibility that they could have their funds lost. And so uh, the other advantage of being capital efficient is the security risks here are much lower. We're a smaller, there's less capital at risk. Um, there's less of a honeypot, which we think is a big advantage. When I think about liquidity, I always think about like incentives. So, so how do you, as a you know, a co-founder of of this uh, of a cross protocol, um, you know, which needs liquidity, how do you jimmy up liquidity and incentivize people to stick around on the across protocol? Um, they could take their money and they could go to anywhere, right? And and do you, is there some lever there that you um, you incentivize them with? Yeah, I mean, this is this is the fun and hard problem here. So I talk about across being capital efficient, meaning we can do a lot of volume with relatively low capital. What that means is we can actually pay 
real fees. We can charge fees to users. So our fees, fun facts, across is, um, is the fastest bridge. We're very quick, and I can talk about why we're very fast. We're very fast at relaying funds um, because of the design of our architecture and the way it works. And it's a really cool feature. Um, we're also very cheap. And the reason why we're very cheap is because there's very little fees we have to pay to acquire this liquidity. Um, and so our fees actually in aggregate to a pretty substantial yield that we then pay to our liquidity providers. So gotcha. by being capital efficient, it means we can charge lower fees to the bridge user, but actually pay higher fees to the liquidity providers um, in the network. And so we think this is a long run strategic advantage for us where we're going to be able to consistently have lower fees, but consistently retrain, re retain capital because we're able to aggregate those lower fees and pay them out as a substantial yield to uh, liquidity providers. That's awesome. Um, there's definitely a reason to stick around. If you're, if you're making cash, right, there's cash flow associated with it. You're going to want to stick around. So that sounds good to me. Um, and, and I think I also read that you had partnered with a few VCs to kind of bootstrap the liquidity in the network. So maybe we could learn about what that process was like. And I'm curious if one of those um, was Bain, because I know Bain Crypto is, uh, I read a report from them maybe a year ago or something, and they noted that they held in their portfolio, and this is like, you know, for, for those who are listening, a very, very large, famous sort of fund. They, they held in their portfolio UMA tokens. And so, are they also part of the across protocol? Uh, they are not a fund. They they are not an investor in the across protocol. They were an original investor in the UMA protocol, and it's actually funny. I know the Bain team really well. I'm technically an advisor to the Bain Crypto Fund, which is kind of cool. Um, so they're they're friends of mine, and I'm close to them. And you're right; they are a big, um, kind of well known, well pedigreed financial services name that actually is in a pretty innovative way has launched uh, a very crypto native uh, VC fund being, being capital crypto um, that's run by two very energetic uh, partners and a very cool team. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm big fans of those guys. Um, so yeah, but back to your original question, across raised uh, a $10 million strategic investment um, from three main VCs. One is placeholder uh, who is also our lead investor on the UMA side. Is that Chris Berninski's uh, That's Chris Berninski. Yeah. So Chris Berninski is a gentleman I've known for a while, and I think he's a brilliant thinker in the space. Um, and uh, He very, called the top. He called the bottom. He does it every year, it seems like. He's a pretty smart dude. Well, I don't know if he's called the bottom yet. It does seem like <laughs> we're a little... November 2022. Remember, he is model. He says we don't have free will anymore because the model said November 2022. <laughs> <laughs> I do love that you know that. Yes. So for your audience, Chris Berninski literally tweeted that we have no free will because his model said the model, the bottom would be November 2022. And it's so far been that but like <laughs> knock on wood let's see what happens yeah. um uh no but chris berninski just as a sidebar uh, i think he's an example of an investor in the crypto space that um is just clear-eyed in his long-termism um mm. and he i i know him well enough to know that you know he gets emotional too he's not immune to emotions um but he tempers them as just like look seen this story before things go up things go down 
at the bottom, it feels scary and everybody tells you it's all over and it's never going to be the same. And that's just not true. So, <laughs> you know, um, so placeholder, uh, uh, was an investor alongside hack VC, um, with another investor known for a while named Alex pack, um, and blockchain capital. Um, and what's very cool about the way this investment was structured is we structured it with this product we called a success token. So the ah, success token I've is like a this. DeFi native way of doing a fundraise that we should probably be a bit louder about. So yeah, let's talk about it. Let's unpack what that is. Cause yeah. I can see it maybe even being like, you know, I, I don't even know what it is yet, but you, you very rarely <laughs> hear something new, but I can see it being like the genesis of like, DeFi summer 2.0, right? Because like how we had liquidity mining compound, first person to really do that. Synthetics kind of tapped onto that. You guys tapped on with the tokens and like then DeFi summer was born. So maybe success token could be something similar. Yeah. Success token is like, um, it's a concept that uh, we've talked about for a little bit. And the basic gist of it is um, venture capitalists want to go and make strategic investments in protocols, um, but they always want this discount. They want to buy tokens cheap uh, to the market. And crypto communities or DAOs that are on the other side of this, they hate this. They're like, why, They're like, Mr. Investor? <laughs> yeah, like, why should you buy these cheap tokens? So, like, I can kind of actually see both sides here. Like, the investor yeah, they, the just... investor's taking on a lot of risk, right? Exactly. And they have some lockup. They have some lockup. They don't have liquidity. They aren't allowed to sell their tokens immediately. Um, there, there's some, there's a real cost to that. But what we kind of realized is like, well, what if we were actually structured this a bit differently? And what if we were to actually have the investor uh, purchase the tokens like at market at like the current price or around the current price and instead give them upside if the protocol does well? So this upside could look like a call option. So basically, the investor buys tokens at current market prices and gets a call option that's out of the money. It's like above the market where the investor will get effectively a bonus if the project does well. And the idea here is that if the project is successful, if everyone does well, including the community, the investor will get that bonus. And therefore, the investor has an increased incentive to um, to 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 push hard and fight for the success of the protocol. I think that totally makes sense. It just kind of shifts the, uh, the patience game, the, the, you know, from getting everything up front to kind of, you know, backloading it a little bit. And so I think that makes sense and it realigns incentives for VCs to stick around and participate more, not just take their tokens, dump them as soon as they get them locked, uh, unlocked. And um, so, yeah, I'm excited to see what other projects kind of, follow suit with the with the success tokens um because to me i mean again like i said you don't hear many new sort of facilities like that in crypto and uh the fact that you guys are building that out the across protocol is really cool um are there any other are, oh sorry you, you were gonna say something no i was just gonna add in and throw in that like i i do think that we have DeFi like inventing new financial tools and primitives and i think it's been a bit unfortunate that venture investing in crypto hasn't been more innovative. Um, and I think the reason for that is just like the venture investors, they don't really want to take any risk on innovating new deal structures, but they should. Cause there is like the way that like the series ABCD thing happens. That's not necessarily the best way 
that fundraising should be happening. And I think DeFi and crypto does give us a venue to actually explore new ideas. And we should be doing that. Now, kind of zooming out a little bit, like, I'm just curious about, um, you know, as a, as a co-founder, are you super technical and like you're coding up all this stuff or is that your partner and you're more making the deals and running the show? How, how, where, where do you lie on the spectrum of, uh, of running this thing? <laughs> um, I do. I don't do any code anymore, but I, I'm, I do a little bit of everything. So I, I did study nice. computer science in university. Um, this was actually a long time ago. And then I worked in finance as a, as a rates trader, uh, a bond trader, an wow. interest rate trader. Um, through the financial crisis, I was at Goldman for eight years. So did that. And then I had a fintech business that got acquired and then I did crypto. So uh, it's just, I've acquired some skills along the way. Uh, my genuine job is to, I, I think we are a very researchy um, organization. We're very kind of research heavy, which, you know, I, I get to take part of, but it's, just really my job is finding brilliant people to come be part of our team. Um, yeah, that's awesome. That's it. Yeah. And, and kind of to, I want to dovetail this conversation a little bit while I have you uh, to a little bit of the macro. Um, to be honest, um, you as a, as a rates trader, bond trader throughout the last financial crisis, um, you might have a lot of info and a lot of kind of experience to maybe that comes to bear on where we're at with a macro uh, right now with rates high, inflation high um, from, you know, from your experience. I mean, it's hard to say like, what's the right move to make or whatever, but like, and it, we all, we all know how we ended up here, but like, is the world going to end? Like, is the recession going to be the worst recession we've ever seen? Like, how do you think about this stuff? Man, so it's like it's like not even a question. It's just open ended. But you know, you don't get to talk to a, a bond trader who really traded through the last recession every day. Yeah, well, thanks, Bryce. I mean, the bond trading. So it's it's funny. I I actually saw when I first started Goldman, I saw the last rate hike uh, in two thousand five. It went from five percent to five and a quarter percent. That was in two thousand five, just as I started. It's a long time ago. Um, and first of all, just to remind people that like in 2005, which is a long time ago, but also like not that, that long ago. Yeah, less than two um, decades. Yeah, less than two decades. <laughs> rates were 5%, right? Like rates were, were meaningfully higher than they are um, uh, today. And then since then, the financial crisis, right, we bring everything down to zero and we do all this quantitative easing. And that's when I was like trading bonds and it was super interesting. Um, what I will say is unique is inflation has not been, like you have to be really quite aged to be, have really seen inflation um, in the at least in North America and the U.S. and Canada. Um, that hasn't happened in our world for a very long time. And I'm not really sure what happens with that? It's kind of an unknown. Um, but what I will say is like all the financial crises that I've really seen and really studied are the result of like some sort of excessive leverage in the system and that leverage becoming unwound really quickly. Um, and I'd say that there was leverage in our system or there has been some leverage in the system, but not of the same degree that we saw in the, the financial crisis 
Um, and so I'm personally not like particularly bearish. I think we're going to have slower growth. And I think there's things like just higher rates kind of will have an effect on multiples and valuations everywhere. But I just don't see this like catastrophic unwind um, in the cards. And I really hope I'm not wrong. I really hope I don't eat my words, but. (laughs) Yeah. And and to your point, you know, I think a lot of it, like we've, we have had the worst year for the 60, 40 portfolio since 1930. So, you know, so like everybody's kind of looking to say, well, the next big unwind, like trying to find the, the, the next domino to fall. Right. And it's like, Look in the rearview mirror. Like there's wreckage behind us. Um, it's it's you know it's the contrarian take to say we're we're now kind of the coast is a little bit more clear just in terms of asset pricing. Um, you know we see you know the dollar index starting to weaken a little bit. You see the Federal Reserve uh, floating two new narratives that I've seen. One is just like hey like you know obviously we're going to start to moderate the the, the rate of um, our rate hikes or the pace of it right. But I also see rumblings of raising the inflation target from the arbitrary 2% uh, to 3% and being able to say, hey, if we get inflation down to 3%, that's going to be a victory for the central bank. Um, Have you heard of this? And if that were to happen, could you help our users think about the implication for what that would mean if we had just sustained inflation at 3% instead of 2%? So I haven't been studying this closely, just to be honest, like what the Mm -hmm. central bank chatter is. Um, uh, I think the 2% target is pretty arbitrary. Like what's the difference between two and 3%? I don't know. 1%. Um, but (laughs) the, the, the thought here, like what the central bank wants is price stability. Um, that does make sense. You want people to think their dollars are going to still be valuable. Cool. Um, does 3% achieve inflation achieve price stability? I think so. Right. Is that a reasonable target? Sure. Is it kind of weird that the Fed is like, okay, we're having a hard time fighting inflation, so we'll just raise our target? Maybe, right? <laughs> They've um, done some dumber shit in the past. <laughs> they have. And they there's have. no accountability there. That's the other thing I think about. Sorry to go on a rant about the Fed, but I'm just like, you know, they've got a thousand of the top economists in the world doing, you know, thousands of hours of research. And not only did they miss like inflation rising, but like they just seem like they're missing just how to like, uh, I don't know, fix it. And I don't know. I, I don't, they got a tough job, a lot tougher than me probably. So I can't. Well, one of, one of my very good friends is a professor of economics and you know, his on his view, which I find funny is it just doesn't matter. It's like the thing, the world's going to do what it's going to do. Like we have these waves. The fed is trying, has this blunt, like blunt instrument to try to adjust things. Mm-hmm. But like, People give them godlike powers, and I don't think that's actually true. Um, and I think this is an interesting, slightly contrarian take where the, the Fed does some important functions, but like generally speaking, you zoom out a bit, the economy is going to do what it's going to do. And I think there's, there's some interesting truth to that. Love it. Um, you know, Hart, you, know, you, you guys decided to launch, uh, you know, a new protocol in the heart of the bear market, no pun intended. But I'm just trying to, to think about as another project um, who already launched, maybe they launched last year or whatever. 
Um, what, what do they need to do to survive the bear market? Do they just really need to hunker down, stop spending, lay people off or whatever? Is there, is there any playbook to really surviving the bear market? Absolutely. Right. It's like, make sure you have enough money to pay your team um, for the next couple of years. So step one, if you don't have enough money, either get it or figure out a way to cut your burn. Right. So do that. And then step two, build cool shit, like build really cool, innovative, meaningful shit, uh, products, technology, research that are going to be relevant in the next bull market. And the, what I always tell my team, it's like, this is our time to kind of like, this is our time to like train to be our best selves, both as like uh, team members and as an organization and as a protocol, like how do we get ourselves into fighting shape for when the bull market comes around so we can just dominate um, in that mayhem. And that's, that's my thought process. I love that. It, it just makes me think it's like, you know, the bear market's like preseason, you know, you're warming up, you're doing your stretches, you're getting your reps in because everybody knows that like once the bull market hits playoffs or whatever, there's distractions out the wazoo um, and all sorts of different stuff. So I like it getting people trained up uh, and, and zoned in so that when the playoffs are here, man, it's like you've been practicing for, for years as a team. Um, and that's how exactly. you're going to succeed. Exactly. Like, like a game plan, like, like just, just get it wired into your brain about like how, what you're, what you, what we do, how we operate, how we can do it better. Just playing our, like playing the best practice game now for when the big game comes. It's a great way to live, honestly. Yeah. And one request, uh, as a user of crypto and DeFi, um, code and build and like, Pretend like there are going to be tens of thousands of or hundreds of thousands of users simultaneously. Because like in the peak of the bear market or sorry, in the peak of the bull market last year, it was like so difficult to get fast transactions settled on Ethereum. And like, you know, people like, of course, everybody wants to trade at the one time. And then it's like not reliable at the one week that you really want it to be reliable or the one day. Um, and so I think a lot of that was just a function of like, People saying, oh, well, there's only a thousand users. Like we could never imagine there being 10x this amount at any given time. And then sure enough, there is and nothing works. And so that's just my request. Pretend there's, you know, build for like uh, thousands of concurrent transactions, I guess. Well, but then you're going to say thousands is not nearly enough. It should be millions, right? Like just to yeah. be clear, like this is the cycle of how it works. It's like in the, uh, you, you, you have demand that exceeds capacity by a lot. The whole thing goes to shit, but everybody focuses on building capacity, which is exactly what we've done. Like block space right now is really cheap. And just for you, what I mean by block space is just the cost of transactions, the cost of using blockchains. It's really cheap right now. And I think it's going to get cheaper. And I think it's going to stay there for a long time because we have so much excess capacity. We, finance this amazing research into scaling technologies and they actually work and work beautifully and now we don't have any need for them um <laughs> until we do right right and so uh the next bull market will have the capacity to be able to build applications that are actually like web 2 scale that are actually billion user scale applications that's wild that is like super cool um 
And yeah, Bryce, everything is going to break in the height of the next bull market. It just will. And I don't, I think that's like definitionally true and there's nothing we can really do about it. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, well, tell me before I let you go, I, I kind of always like to ask this to everyone that comes on the show, but it's like, you know, outside of anything that you're like directly focused on or building, what's one other project, one other person maybe um, that you think is building something really cool. Uh, that thing's going to be a cornerstone of the industry moving forward. It's a hard one, right? I'm trying to think of like the narratives and themes that I think are, are really cool. Um, very broadly, NFTs have actually held up really well in this bear market. And I, I think I have this inkling that the NFT space, there's going to be some creative people in there that do some wild and cool things that I don't have words for yet. Um, so I I, I'm like trying to pay more attention to that. Not from like, uh, you know, monkey JPEGs type thing, but from like, what is the real innovation there? Um, and then on like the hard tech side, all these zero knowledge proof stuff, the ZK proof stuff too. Um, I've gotten a little bit closer of it for your users. This zero knowledge proof stuff is a crypto technology that allows you, that allows you to uh, prove something to be true without telling people what it is and um, doing it succinctly and quickly. And it's, it's crazy math. No one should bother trying to understand the math unless they're a math PhD. But the tech is shockingly close. People thought this was like a five-year-old thing for a long time. And it's really here now. So on the hard tech side, I think like zero knowledge stuff is going to be very impactful um, in the near future. Love it. Well, hey, man, you've given us plenty to go research on our own as well uh, as we close things up. Hart, thank you so much for coming on to the Crypto 101 podcast, talking to us about UMA protocol, about Across. Um, where can us, uh, where can us, where can we all keep tabs on you uh, as well as your projects? You know, are you guys Twitter focused, Discord? You guys stick to the website? Well, <laughs> we, yeah, no, we definitely. We're everywhere, but Twitter, Twitter. I'm personally at Hal2001, H-A-L-2001 on Twitter. And then our projects like Uma.xyz will take you to our website. It's got our Twitter link. You even have the light, the Hal light from uh, Space Odyssey. I was going to make the joke yeah. and then you already had it. My God, you're, this is amazing. <laughs> well, Bryce, okay. So my Hal2001, when I studied computer science, that was my university assigned uh, like login ID. Get so all my computer out. science professors thought it was the coolest thing. Um, that is way funny. cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, but Uma project at, at Uma.xyz links to our, our Twitter there um, and our discord. And then for across the domain is across.to.to. Like the idea is bridge across .to. Um, but um <laughs> Across.2 is our is our app. It really is the fastest, cheapest, most secure way to bridge between asset uh, between bridge assets between chains, um, and it's got links to our Twitter and our Discord there too. So, yeah. Love it. All right, guys. Well, check the show notes for those links. And heart, man, I hope we get to have you back on the show sometime soon. Talk about whatever else you guys are building um, and whatever else is exciting you. I thought this was a ton of fun. So, uh, thanks for your time today, and we'll see you soon. Thanks so much, Bryce. Talk soon.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue. All in the Kroger app. Get three pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.